Hello and welcome to the Beyond Biotech podcast number 75. And this week I actually had to look up which number it was. I'm Jim Cornell and this is the weekly LaBiotech podcast. The big question this week is what is the connection between Biotech and Herbie Hancock, the great musician? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out in this week's conversation, which is about worms of all things. And that chat is with Holoclera CEO, Andrea Cho. While studying at Caltech, she discovered that roundworms, which have survived the harshest environments, secrete specific molecules that could block severe allergic and autoimmune diseases, and that worm-human coevolution may have helped protect us. They were common in humans until perhaps 150 years ago, but they were then pretty much removed from our environment. And Andrea thinks that the reduction in the worms that used to inhabit the gut might in fact be a reason why we've seen an uptick in certain diseases. Holoclera is aiming to unlock a novel class of therapies that could be a game changer for the future of human health. So let's get to the conversation. So I guess the easiest and most obvious question is if you could tell me a little bit about the origins of the company. Sure. I mean, that goes, I guess that goes way back to my days at Caltech. So maybe I can sort of paint the scene for that time. I mean, at the time that I went to Caltech, so I did the MD-PhD program here in Southern California, which means, you know, I did the my MD at USC. I did my PhD at Caltech. At the time that I went to Caltech, that was kind of 2006. And we had just completed the human genome project. There was a lot that we had learned about genetics and scientists were actually using roundworms, specifically C. elegans, to just interrogate genetics. And the, the kinds of things that we could learn from a roundworm were pretty incredible. I mean, have you heard of people using roundworms just to develop tools and explore the basic tenets of life? I mean, just if I had to give a little bit of background on the worm, it's C. elegans, this species, was the first animal to have its genome completely sequenced, synaptic connections mapped. I mean, you you walk into a lab. I mean, when, when I first walked into the lab, I was just amazed at the fact that, first of all, you can put a, ma- a worm under a microscope and it'll lay on its side, paralyzed for a moment, and you can use a laser to ablate any cell you want at any point in its life. You could also feed it bacteria with RNAi and knock out any gene that you want. There was just a tremendous amount of just science that you could study using C. elegans. So that's what drew me into the lab. And I just wanted to give a little bit of background of how tremendous you know, worm research is. So at the time, I originally took on this project to study mutations and understand genetics. And at that time, my PI, Paul Sternberg, had left for a summer sabbatical and during that time, I went rogue and I totally abandoned the project. And when he came back, he was like, what, what did you do? And I said, actually, I, I didn't do anything. I didn't do any of the work that we agreed on. And I ended up talking about how incredible it was, this idea of worms. When you watch them, you could see them. They would go left. They would go right. They would mate. They would aggregate. I'm like, what is it that they're, what is mediating these behaviors? And how has it evolved around different species. And we just had these long conversations about pheromones and molecular language 
And I just really wanted to take on this project of understanding what it was that worms were secreting that they're using to communicate with each other. So that was the beginning of that project. And, you know, as I started eavesdropping on the worms, we started finding these really interesting molecular languages that they were secreting that were all the same. I mean, the thing is, I expected go, to go into this thinking, oh, this is going to be 14 different chapters on 14 different species and 14 different things that they were evolved to talk to each other. What we found was remarkable. They were using the same molecular language, just different letters of the alphabet to communicate, you know, hey, there's a, there's a predator over here. Or there's food scarcity over here. You know, there's potential mates over here. And that finding in itself was how I got my PhD. And so that was sort of the groundwork for trying to think about, okay, there are all these worms and they're communicating with each other. And that was going to be it. I was going to return to medical school and pursue my medical career. But then I started thinking about, you know, this human history element of worms, because the truth is we're supposed to have worms. If you look at mummies, they've had worms. Homo erectus before Homo sapiens, they've had gut round worms. And if you look at King Richard III, Ozzy the Iceman, they all had gut round worms. Mummies from all over the world had gut round worms. And then when you, when you suddenly took them out at the turn of the century, something happened. There was a, suddenly this increase in allergic and autoimmune disease. Is it a coincidence? I don't know. But there was this sort of hypothesis that these diseases that started arising could have happened because we've removed these gut roundworms. And that's kind of a little bit of the setting of the background of what I walked into. How does that research then turn into you saying that you're going to start up a company using this knowledge toward human health? Yeah, great question. Well, from there, I just became really interested in this whole phenomenon. And I started reading more literature. I would listen to podcasts. I listened to a radio lab podcast about how this guy with intractable asthma walked around barefoot in Africa to get hookworms on purpose to treat his disease. And then it worked. And then he came back and he was selling worms and the FDA shut him down. And he's selling them out of Mexico. And there are all of these other stories. Like there was this article from the New York Times, Parasite Underground, where all these people were taking worms to treat their disease. They were taking matters into their own hands when therapies for them just wouldn't work. Biologics, steroids, sometimes it just doesn't work. So that was really interesting to me because I'd wait at the end of those articles or podcasts to hear, well, what is it that people are doing about it? And it never got to the point where I was saying, and here's what someone's doing about it. It sort of ended there. I mean, the parasite underground, that term in, in and of itself is they have to go into the shadows to find this, the, these sort of worms illegally. So that just inspired me to think, well, can we solve this? Can we do something about it? And if you look at what the FDA is doing, of course, they're not going to want you to take a living parasitic worm, right? That sounds like a regulatory nightmare. Is that one worm going to become thousand? Is it going to become zero? Is it going to hurt you? How do you know it's safe secreting the things that you want it to? So of course, they just want you to find what is it that they're secreting that could be responsible for this. So that's when we thought, okay, we have discovered this molecular language from roundworms. It's kind of like this Rosetta Stone of roundworms and their language. There's got to be something in there 
that could be responsible for this. And lo and behold, that's what we found. Some of the molecules that we studied were incredibly therapeutic if they could block preclinical models of allergic disease, autoimmune disease. And I mean, it was pretty remarkable. So at that point, we decided to start the company. So prior to roundworms being kind of eradicated from humans, was it a symbiotic relationship? I think so. I mean, I, I tend to think about worms that I don't ever want to say good or bad because that's just a human-centric view, right? But ones that are beneficial to us and ones that are not. I would think the ones that are not beneficial are kind of the ones that go to your eyeballs and migrate to your muscles. I don't want them there. But I think the ones that are dwelling in your gut, they are secreting things in a way that there must be something that they're secreting that can help balance your immune system. And so if you think about it, the worm's goal is really just to protect themselves. And they've been here for such a long time. They're actually, by some people's definition, the most successful animal on earth because they're the most abundant animal by number in the world. So why have they been so successful since for hundreds of millions of years? Like they survived T-Rex. They survived the time of dinosaurs and the Cambrian explosion and all of that. How have they been, they been able to squirrel away in all these different environments? They have had the luxury of time to secrete the perfect molecular tool set of things that can help modify their environment. So in the worms in specific, they're just, if they're sitting in your gut, they're secreting things that simply block our inflammatory response to that worm. So for example, eosinophilic diseases. The eosinophil is actually designed to get rid of parasitic worms. So could it be that people with eosinophilic diseases, actually their body thinks that there's a worm there when there isn't. And so it's starting to attack its own body. And could it be that these molecules that we found that the worms are using to temper that response could help them? It's almost kind of like it seems they're a part of the microbiome, but not necessarily bacterium, that the microbiome might be a little more than just a mix of I guess, viruses, maybe fungi, bacteria. That's exactly right. That's what we believe as well. The number of species that there are now is a lot less than it was a couple of hundred years ago because of what we're doing collectively to the planet. Do you think that there are maybe other species that have similarly beneficial activities on humans that we're kind of getting rid of without even realizing that we're harming ourselves, maybe? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And let me put it this way. Uh, you're a musician, right? Yeah. So my husband was telling me this story where he walks into a room and Herbie Can Hancock is there. Herbie grabs the microphone and he asks this question. He says, how many families do you think there are in the world? And after a pause, he goes one or one family, right? And if you think about it, which, you know, Herbie would probably like this because he's an electrical engineer. Think about the whole world as a giant circuit board. Prove to me that we're not all connected. You know, humans plus plants plus animals plus worms. How can you prove that? We've coexisted for such a long time that we're all part of the same circuit board. So of course, if you're just going to hole punch one aspect of it and you remove it, you're going to lose that resource without understanding what that was doing and how you were living in harmony with that. So that's our goal is to find those missing pieces, which is why Holoclera, it's actually named Holoclera 
it comes from this Greek word holocleros, which is to complete, like to complete the missing part. And that's what we'd like to do is we'd like to return key secretions from gut roundworms that are intended to be a part of our ecosystem and, you know, can potentially make a huge impact on human health. And it's pretty cool that we managed to get Herbie Hancock into a biotech podcast. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Without giving any kind of secrets away to the work that you're doing, what are the molecules that the roundworms are secreting and how does that connect to human disease in terms of that communication in the gut? Yeah, I mean, what we can share is that they're secreting many different things. You know, me and my co-founders, who, you know, includes this incredible geneticist, like I mentioned, Paul Sternberg, an incredible chemical biologist, Frank Schroeder from Cornell, we really thought about what is it that we want to do at Holoclera. And, you know, I think finding things that can be orally available, that we can improve, that we can really mimic this idea of a worm being in your gut, secreting things every day. We really want to figure out how we can make this a therapeutic offering. How do we go from this science and how do we scale this? So that's when we started thinking about who could be included in our team. And one of those is an incredible chemist, Brian Stoltz, who's also at Caltech. And he really specializes in these nature-derived small molecules. So he's helping us think about how can we even improve this further? How do we make this consumable for man? And he's just an example of one of the teammates that we've recruited to do this. And I don't think that it's just the secretions are just affecting the gut. They're actually affecting so many other components of the immune system. And that's what we're discovering. And it's really interesting. So how do you then turn that into something that's given to humans in terms of the mode of action and the mode of delivery? Because you were mentioning earlier how the worms have so many ways of communication through those secretions. How do you narrow that down to apply it to humans? Well, we find key molecules that have a lot of potency. We make them from scratch. We put it in a pill give it to people. It's as simple as that. So it's going to be a pill that people can take that's orally available. And that's something that we have made from scratch using GMP methodology, things where we go through the typical checkpoints of safety and regulatory guidelines. So at the end of the day, people feel safe taking this. Look, I I, I really don't blame people for wanting to take out worms, right? Like if I were someone that were I don't know, the early 1900s to the 20th century, and I see this ad for remove roundworms, I'm going to want to take it because the idea of it sounds gross. I get it. Nobody wants to eat living roundworms. So that's what we want to do is bring back these key components that maybe were intended to be a part of our immune system, but without the actual living worms. Do you need the worms initially, or do you need the worms to be able to create the compounds, or are you able to do that in a different way? Yeah, we use traditional chemistry to do that. We use the worms to identify the compounds, but then we use traditional chemistry to make them. What kind of conditions are you looking to be able to address through this? Yeah, that's a great question. We have evidence for both allergic and autoimmune diseases that we know that our molecules can block these diseases. We're starting with allergic disease to begin with, and we'll expand from there. Is it something that you'll be able to just 
cure it or is it something that kind of like a multivitamin that you would take once a day to maintain that health? I think that it would probably be something that people take daily or, you know, frequently to mimic that worm being in their gut, releasing it and secreting it and living in harmony with the human body. Now, as to whether we we cure it, I hope so. You know, that would be great. And even if it's something that you were taking every day a little bit of and you keep your disease at bay, you know, that could be the definition of curing something. How far along the journey are you currently? Yeah, so we started in 2017, and I can share that in 2024, which is just around the corner, we'll be heading into our first clinical trials. In terms of the business side of things, how important are partnerships, investments, and what have you been able to achieve in that area? Oh, their partnerships and investors, investments, they're everything. They're what drives this whole operation. I have a lot of really great investors that have helped us from the beginning, including Bold Capital, Partner and Horizons Ventures, and more recently, the NIH. It's something as well, with it being something slightly different, is the reaction to it one of, wow, that's really interesting, or is it more of a that's kind of weird. Is it what kind of reaction are you getting? It's a mixed bag. So I, I don't expect everyone to have one reaction or another. You never know until you talk to someone about it. You always have to give them the opportunity to be inspired by a worm story. People are pretty interested because at the end of the day, they all know someone with an allergic and autoimmune disease. So I don't think that we have the luxury of turning away from an opportunity like this especially if this is part of the missing link that could be responsible for allergic and autoimmune disease. What are the next steps? You mentioned the clinical trials. Are there other things that you kind of have to work on alongside that? We're growing. Our team members are growing. We've recruited some great people to join this mission, including, you know, I have a board member, Peter Barton Hutt, who is, you know, our regulatory expert. He's former chief counsel to the FDA we recruited um, Rick Mazels, who is the leading sort of worm scientist and immunologist in this space, because believe it or not, there's a whole field of people studying this phenomenon out there. So, you know, he's joined our mission. And then I just have great corporate advisors like Stan Lapidus, who has just reinvented his field multiple times. So it's just how do we do something that's big and how do we scale this? So I'm always looking for more people that can listen to this story and say, hey, that makes a lot of sense. I want to help or I want to get involved or I want to know something about it. Reach out to me. We're always looking for people that want to help be a part of this mission. So I think that that is always going to be happening in parallel uh, with, with as we march closer to clinical trials and beyond. And I assume as well that there are probably other discoveries still waiting to be made, not just necessarily with roundworms, but in other species as well that may lead to some cures. I mean, that's really partially what inspired me as well, because if you think about that era that I was telling you about, you know, there was a lot of stuff that happened in the 2000s, like uh, CRISPR came from a bacteria, optogenetics from Stanford came from algae, right? Ozempic. Do you know where that comes from? Gila monster. 
So there's just been a lot of this movement of people being inspired by nature and nature has already innovated these great tools and therapies. So people are mining it. And I think that that that's part of what inspired me to form Holoclera and do this. So I do think that there is this whole movement and this renewed interest in exploring that. Well, hopefully your success will inspire some of that maybe. I hope so. I, and, and truly, I know, I mean, I know a lot of the people that are doing this sort of thing. And for sure, we are all colleagues and comrades in this. We're excited about what the next chapter is going to bring, not just in terms of technology, but drug discovery. An interesting and thought-provoking conversation there, and definitely something to keep an eye on as the company Hollow Clara grows. I think after that, I will go and dig out some of my old Herbie Hancock albums. The only problem is which era. And also whether or not to annoy the neighbours by playing along with them. Anyway, don't forget to check out the latest news and articles at labiotech.eu. And I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week ahead. Thanks for listening, and you'll join us again next time for another Beyond Biotech.